Welcome to a new episode of The Legacy of John Williams podcast. I'm your host, Maurizio Caschetto. My guest today is soundtrack producer Mike Matesino, who is here with us to talk about his latest John Williams restoration project, the Disaster Movie Soundtrack Collection. Disaster Movie Soundtrack Collection, music by John Williams, released by La La Land Records, is a thrilling limited edition 4-disc box set containing the remastered and expanded original scores to the three classics of the disaster movie genre from the 1970s, The Poseidon Adventure, The Towering Inferno and Earthquake, all composed and conducted by John Williams. The CD Tower and Inferno presentation is the centerpiece of the collection and it's a major restoration project, the most comprehensive and best-sounding representation of this amazing score to date. Poseidon Adventure has been restored and remastered from original vault materials for improved sound over previous releases. presentation of the 1974 soundtrack album recording and, for the first time, the world premiere of the original film score recording. (laughs) 
this conversation, Mike talks about his work on this stunning release, but we also cover the rest of his John Williams restoration released over 2019, the Intrada expanded release of Monsignor and La La Land Records 2CD set of Minority Report. Joining us in the conversation is radio presenter and concert producer Tim Burden. So sit back and relax for an engaging talk on this true symphony of elements by John Williams. Welcome back to the Legacy of John Williams podcast. I'm so happy to have you here again as my guest. Thanks, Maurizio. It's great to be back. And hello, uh, Tim, there in the UK. Hello. Good to have. Uh, good to be back with you guys again. Yeah. So so happy to have you both here. So it's been another quite exciting year for John Williams fans with the various remaster expansion that came out during 2019 that you, Mike, have worked on since we talked in February last time discussed your work on Superman 40th anniversary release. So it's been perhaps a tad less daunting than 2018, which saw several big releases like the Harry Potter box set and Dracula, but nonetheless thrilling. So I'd like to start discussing virtually where we left off in February, picking up on another London recording John Williams did for a film starring Christopher Reeve, but this time it's not about a man flying in a red cape, but an almost obscure 20th Century Fox production from 1982. About a man in a cloth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Different kind of cloth, yeah. That would be uh, Monsignor. Yes. Yeah. So what can you tell us about you know, that specific release? Well, it relates to the news that I'm sure uh, we've all read about and know about, which is what has happened to the 20th Century Fox studios and knowing that we had a limited time within which to do any remaining projects of their films and scores it's one that i had gone to i went to entrada about it because they had put the album out before and i said you guys want to do an expanded release while we can with fox and they said yes so that was um, basically how that came about and it sort of plays into a whole agenda of doing whatever 20th Century Fox scores we could do um, before that door closed to us. And that's not to say that it's closed permanently. It's just that it, we knew that it was going to reach a point where when one studio was going to absorb another and try to ingest 80 years of history and assets, um, there's going to be a, a, at least a period of time where all of that just kind of goes on pause until... They work it all out and figure out what they want to do. But um, it's also related to the loss of Nick Redman, to whom you paid a loving tribute last time. But basically, when everything settled from all of that, I was basically asked to pick up on his um, duties as producer for the studio and to work with all the labels and to come up with a list of uh, all the titles that they wanted to get done. 
before that door closed. Had the Disney purchase not happened, um, I'd still be going on with it probably for as many more years as we could. But um, it was just a coincidence that we lost him basically in the same exact moment as the, uh, the merger went through. So um, that was kind of the theme for the whole year. A very big focus for me was uh, 20th Century Fox and navigating that basically um, to an end point where um, the labels that we know of would uh, give me their list of everything left that they wanted to do and we'd go and try to do as many of them as possible. previous uh, Monsignor release was, I think, from 2007, am I right? Yes, and sold out fairly quickly, as I recall. And I think that it definitely sounds much better and clearer than the previous release. So had you have to work with different elements than the previous remaster? Well, yes, there was um, a three-track scoring masters um, for Monsignor. Um, at Fox, which we had never played, because back in 2007, we didn't yet have the ability to do the Fox and Universal Music Group combination licenses, and that stood in the way of many, many projects. Um, so Monsignor was one that didn't happen, and Entrada just did a straight license from Universal Music Group of the soundtrack album and put it out then. it uh, I don't think it had ever been on CD, other than that. Came and went, sold out quickly. So, uh, and I didn't think there was too much unreleased music, but it was, it was at least something to get done before it was a, um, controlled by Walt Disney Company, and the assumption was that things would be harder to do after that happened, uh, even though their own Hollywood Records distributes through Universal Music Group. Hmm. It wouldn't necessarily have been impossible, but, you know, it was a complete uh, unknown. We really didn't know who we'd be dealing with and how long it would take for all of that reorganization to um, happen, and it's still ongoing as we speak now. So it was just uh, something that um, seemed like a good idea to get done. I liked the fact that it was one more London Symphony Orchestra recording to follow, as you said, um, Harry Potter and Dracula and Superman. When we played these eight tracks, I discovered that the... It was eight-track tape, but it was three tracks of music on it. Um, I discovered in comparing it to the album that uh, the mix was very, very different. And doing a little bit more research into the history of the film, 
I found that um, they moved the release date forward and basically compromised the time that was needed to do a Dolby Stereo mix, which was planned. But they actually ended up putting the film out in mono. So these three-track mixes are what were prepared for the Dolby Stereo soundtrack of the film that never happened. The film came out in mono. So John and Eric Tomlinson went, and with Lionel Newman, who produced that album, went back and did a complete remix for the LP. And John even went back over to London to record two more pieces for the album well after the film was done. So they were very, very different. And thankfully, when I timed it all out, it seemed like if we presented the entire album and the entire score that was recorded for the film with those mixes, it all fit on one CD. So um, rather than just um, adding another five or 10 minutes of unreleased music, it was a way to present the entire thing. Universal Music Group supplied um, a transfer of the original album master one from the UK, uh, similar to what happened with um, E.T. and Dracula. Um, and I was able to kind of just um, restore that, clean that up, make it as good as possible, and then put the two programs together on one CD and um, basically you know, finally have everything that there is to have, have on Monsignor. I think that was um, very nice to have because uh, you can hear really a kind of an evolution from the first projects that John did with the London Symphony. And I think Monsignor was just the second time when he was recorded at Abbey Road Studios, right? I think he did only Raiders before because all the previous ones were done at uh, Denim Studios, right? Uh, and Return of the Jedi, after, yeah. um, after which is after Monsignor, right? So yes, so Raiders, that's correct, right? Uh, Anvil was, uh, Empire Strikes Back was Anvil. Yeah, because you can hear a much warmer, fuller sound in the Abbey Road yep. 
uh, recordings you know, than, than the ones in denim. It's a very open, has a very open sound, and it's, of course, very written in a very European style, very classic romantic European style, and, um, you know, the LSO played it beautifully, and it was, it was recorded very well. It didn't have the challenges that the Dracula elements had. It was much more robust and easy to work with, but it was fascinating to hear how the two mixes were so very different, and um, there was really no way to kind of go back and forth between them. It made more sense to present the album, and then here is the film score and all those mixes, and it filled out the CD nicely. So, um, But it was fascinating to hear the different choices that were made when you mix for a film um, than if you do it with specifically for a record album in mind. And that was a pretty good-sounding record, um, the first the LP of Dracula was not as good sounding, but um, this is a few years later, so things had improved a bit. I think with Masonia, it was particularly nice just to hear the obviously the unreleased music, like the end credits, which you know hadn't been released before, and um, and as you said, Mauricio, you know the the sound of that, like you know the meeting in Sicily and some of those cues, just uh, had never sounded so good. It was also nice, once again, like we did with Superman earlier in the year, to get a bit of coverage on Classic FM, you know, and kind of make a big deal of, you know, this is a significant piece of work. You know, it was during that seminal era of Williams and the LSO, and it was great to shine a bit of spotlight on it, because, I mean, it's, it's a score that very few talk about. I mean, obviously we, as Williams uh, experts, do, but the kind of general populace don't really know much about it. Well, I think, um, you know, just something funny um, struck in my mind. It's like, uh, you remember when, um, first of all, um, I'm flashing back to uh, when I was in London for the uh, the Royal Albert Hall concert, and we had that little symposium yeah. early in the afternoon. We, we had Rodney Newton there giving some stories about Monsignor, which was just wonderful um, to actually just bring some attention and... Um, to an, what's an obscure title, but a while later, I'm trying to remember exactly when it was, I think it actually might have been um, when um, Nick Redman's memorial happened. Um, our friend from over there, Dave Norris, who hosted that day at Universal, um, was over here in town, and we went out to a restaurant with a bunch of people, and I was telling about Monsignor was about to come out, and the uh, another score that was mentioned at the time that I'm not working on, just so everybody know, but it just came up in conversation, was Heartbeeps. <laughs> they were identified as two, arguably two projects that John Williams has scored that are really not known as being very good films. But I just 
there was a moment where I said, you know, this has to be the only place in the entire planet right now where anybody is talking about Monsignor and Heartbeats. <laughs> because I don't, I don't think if they had been scored by John Williams that uh, they'd ever be talked about. Yeah, that's a good point. But, uh, they both have terrific scores, and um, yeah. they, they might be, you know, sort of, sort of two of the last real clunkers that he's worked on. But I think I always wonder what kind of relationship Williams has with these minor works, so to speak, from that era. Because, I mean, he he never talks about this score or the Fury or even Jaws two, but they're really incredible scores from that golden period and. Of course, the fact that they are associated with not-so-successful film, not only financially, uh, perhaps has a role in it. But what do you think? Does he make any distinction in his mind when it comes to present these works on album, on disc? I don't think he's averse to it. I just think that, uh, well, you know, from hearing him talk, um, he really works in the same way a a newspaper journalist works. Mm. You know, he'll write the story and submit it and off it goes and he doesn't go back 20 years later and read it to see oh my gosh i i didn't do that very well let me rewrite it it's done <laughs> and he's moved on so uh, but if something comes up and there's a need for something like when they recently brought night journeys from dracula back to for concert and it was one of the things that was on uh, the anna sophie mutter project yeah um you know he's perfectly fine with it you know, so and something like Monsignor out out the gate um, had a relationship with um, the Esplanade Overture that he did with the Boston Pops, where I think he was working on something and then kind of felt that it was good for Monsignor, but then it ended up being a concert piece anyway. So um, I don't think we've really heard from it since then. But um, I, I don't think he's necessarily uh, objects to something old coming up again but he may not think of it or he may not even remember doing it until somebody brings it up and there are some scores um that do end up being done again even though um the movies are not particularly well known or regarded they do keep appearing in in uh, in concert so I, yeah i don't think he has any necessarily a, a problem with it or anything he actively dislikes it's just that there has to be sort of a reason to revisit it yeah, yeah, because I think that, especially Monsignor, because it has those beautiful concert-like arrangements, very British, very, as you said before, very European sounding like, that would be great to pick up and, you know, perform in concert. Even the main theme with the solo trumpet, uh, which was done by the great Maurice Murphy back in the original recording, but, I mean, he just did a beautiful album with the L.A. Field principal trumpet, Tom Hooden, that he could be a great solist for in a new recording of that piece.
Yeah, at this point, you'd have to just ask yourself how, you know, someone would have to program a concert of John Williams' obscurities, um, you know, because we do tend to get the more well-known titles coming back, or there has to be some handle, some, some, something to sort of hang it on. So, unfortunately, you do get these movies that have drifted into obscurity, and then if you program them into a concert, you know, you'll look at, the, look at it in the program list and just people will scratch their heads saying, what is this? But, uh, you, you, you're, of course, with John Williams, we're also always surprised, and it's mm. a, 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 refreshing, for a refreshing thing to hear something that you're not terribly familiar with and getting to hear it performed um, by an orchestra again. I think that was, that was nice, you know, that what Keith Lockhart did a couple of years ago. You know, he, he brought a couple of obscurities out, uh, you know, for his Lights, Camera, Action CD um, with the Boston Pops. And, it, you know, it was refreshing. And, I, you know, and I, when you think about that, occasionally I think that sometimes spurs Williams to think about that, you know, because we, we know that he's quite and his kind of management structure are quite strict about what gets released to Hal Leonard, you know. So he's very he's very choosy as to which, you know, which music becomes available. So it's he he does make it available to certain, you know, other whether it be conductors or or producers. So I think you know he's just very he's very he's very choosy. But uh, and I guess that that's his his privilege, you know. Yeah, it was certainly wonderful to hear the overture from "Goodbye, Mr. Chips." Yeah, uh, get brought out again, which is fifty years ago now. Heidi, as well, you know. Heidi, and then this summer at the Bull, he did the uh, the Jane Eyre Suite was done. So um, that's right, and the Cowboys, you know, which we came out with last year. So yes, so uh, so they do come out, but I mean, yeah, I don't. Um, God, it would be wonderful to get. Uh, I've always thought that that you know the. Um, Crime Buster from Heartbeeps would just be incredibly good in concert. But what would you possibly <laughs> yeah. say about that movie? Forget Charles Grodin can come and introduce it. That's the kind of only key. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of um, concert arrangement, a, a couple of years ago, actually, he pulled out uh, the original arrangements of the end credits of Minority Report, and he performed them in, uh, I think, both in uh, in LA and in Boston. So, and that ties with the next release that came out this year, which is a two CD set of Steven Spielberg's sci-fi thriller Minority Report. Another 20th Century Fox film, this time co-produced by DreamWorks Pictures, and it's a fairly recent score and one that probably many 
uh, didn't think was worth expanding before listening to this new edition, which for me really was a stupendous revelation in many departments, mostly for the sound quality you might were able to achieve in comparison to the almost muddy OSD album. Well, uh, God, you gave me a lot there. Uh, first of all, I think um, the piece you're talking about is A New Beginning, yep. and it's such a beautiful theme. Well, yes, there again, 20th Century Fox. That was one that uh, was on La La Land's list, and it had to come to the front of the line because of the situation with the studio. But what had happened by then is that we also lost, still around, meaning he retired, um, Ron Fugelsby, who is an unsung hero, um, who was pulling and compiling and preparing all of the 20th Century Fox music elements since 1993 when Nick first started. So 25 years. And I'm also going to interject a shout out to Sean Belston, who was for many years the head of asset management for 20th Century Fox, who in all of the years that he was there absorbed the cost of every single music transfer that was done from studio material. The labels never had to pay for any of it. Also happy to report that the Walt Disney Company has hired him, so he is working there, and we still have someone looking at the Fox assets who actually knows them. So that's very good news. But uh, but Ron retired the day after Nick passed away. So it was sort of, literally was a perfect storm, where um, the infrastructure that had existed since the early 90s um, was suddenly gone. So when it came to Minority Report, I had to deal with a whole bunch of new people who had absolutely no awareness of everything that we were doing. So in the past, it would be Nick saying, Label X is doing score such and such. And I'd be like, okay. And then weeks later, Ron Fugelsby would call me up and say, I have a hard drive for you. Mm. And that was it. On Minority Report, now I had to uh, talk to one person about looking for what material existed. Different person for calling the material in. Different person for going over to the Fox myself and looking at the material. A different person to figure out where to have it transferred. A different person to um, authorize the cost. Um, so it was suddenly much more administration than I had ever had to do, and even more than Nick uh, had to do. Because if he were still around, he'd be having to deal with um, all this new infrastructure. And you know, it reached a point where Sean did not have carte blanche to just absorb any costs that he wanted. So Minority Report was one of the last ones. So, um, and this was the kind of project where there was really no way to figure out what elements to use and without bringing them in to physically look at them. The score was recorded um, digitally and there were digital masters. And we have a um, person working internally at Fox, Tom Carlson, who's a music editor, who was doing a lot of the archiving within the studio of um, their music assets. And he was instrumental on the Titanic release, for example. Um, so he had Minority Report, but it was all the... Um, he was basically would take the, like the hard drives from 2002 and uh, update them, and you have to convert the file formats and all this thing to, to migrate the data. And I had wanted something higher resolution because in 2002, it w we were in a very different place with digital recording. It wasn't in the super high resolution we have now. So there were many, many, many rolls of two-inch analog 
So it was clear that they recorded analog and digital at the same time, uh, much like the first Harry Potter. Um, but this was relatively early in the history of DreamWorks, so it was not necessarily completely organized yeah. so that one project didn't exactly resemble the other and you're dealing with different studios. So, But anyway, they all were brought in and I found out something remarkable is that there were A and B two inches. So when you put them together, that makes 48 tracks. But then there's also another set of two inch that interlocked with those on which Sean Murphy had put his mix downs. Hmm. And a six-channel mix of orchestra, um, three-channel mix of synthesizer, three-channel mix of choir, three-channel mix of percussion. And so it was really a perfect element. And all of the selected takes were circled. So we just basically transferred those sets in high resolution. And then I went and redid all the performance edits. So without having to change the, the basic quality of the mix, I had control over the various components of that mix mm. and could then listen to the film and listen to the original album and listen to the choices that were made and really keep it in the same arena. Don't upset the integrity of what the original intent was, but mm. let the clarity come through. And I did it the way that I did the first Harry Potter, which was to basically take that transfer data, do all of my work on it, come up with the assemble program for each disc, and then just bounce it right out to CD master so there was just no multiple copying of data even. It just all stayed true from the high-resolution capture of the analog right through to the finished master. And it did, uh, so even when you down-convert it to the resolution that CD audio gives us, I still hear the increase in quality. It's just um, everything that, the, um, that analog can offer when you transfer in high-resolution is preserved, um, it comes through. And when I listened to it, I thought, this is really, really working. And uh, when it was all done and it came out, I was very happy that the response was so great. And it was, as you say, it was kind of revelatory because there was, um, it's got a unique sound and the narrative structure of it is something that I don't think the original album gave us. Yeah. Even though that was a very good uh, album. So that was one that was very gratifying to get done and ended up being um, 
I think to date, the most recent Williams score, right? And the most recent Williams Spielberg score that I've done. I think so, yes. Yes, that's right, yeah. Yes, it's great to have uh, all those cues where he recreated the Bernard Herrmann color and vibe. Herrmann was a great reference for Williams in this score, especially in the contrast between the lyrical pieces and then the stark, moody colors. kind of made me think of uh, Fahrenheit 451 in the sense that there is this very beautiful lyrical pieces that express the the hope in the future and the hope in the better things in the future and then all the moody and dark colors with low bassoons and low brass and the electronics as well and that is very beautiful and quite unique I think in in his career I think a very ambitious score and a very ambitious film um, which holds up when you look at it. It's like they really, nobody slacked off doing that movie. It really, they really were doing something very ambitious. Um, and, uh, and Williams rose to the occasion. Yeah. No, I agree. And I, I think, you know, as you say, some of the visuals, it was quite, quite dynamic. I mean, you Tom Cruise, you know, the, these days, maybe we would, we wouldn't think twice about all these fancy touch screens and him flicking things here and there and everywhere. But that was ahead of its time back then, and it was really, really, really clever. Um, and whenever you're talking about the the reflective themes, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, I don't think anyone, you know, really does that kind of reflection motif with that kind of sense of optimism as well as Williams. It's it's such a it's such a clever thing to home into because so many, you know, try and do it, but they they just can't quite nail it the way you can, uh, you know, with the likes of Minority Report or as I've, I've said many times before, I mean, I always go back to Sleepers. I think what he did with the reunion and finale in Sleepers, considering the emotional turmoil we've all gone through for two and a half hours, is incredible. And you, you, you can't help but feel this amazing sense of, uh, you know, sadness, yet optimism for what we've just gone through, you know. I, I was speaking recently in another podcast about Sean's theme in uh, Minority Report, which is a goes throughout all the film which is the, the lyrical centerpiece and it's very interesting to note that this is a theme actually for a dead character actually we don't see the character anywhere in the film except for one flashback sequence and home movies yes exactly
So he develops this beautiful lyrical theme, which is like a halo, like a remembrance of someone. And that becomes the, the heart of the movie and then the music and and it's so important in some scenes and it becomes so key especially in the scene where agatha the precog uh, tells the story of uh, you know the imaginary future that sean could have had if not being slaughtered and that is a very very powerful moment in the film well and think about you know what he had to work with there is a gut-wrenching idea which is that if you've lost a child and then the the grief that a parent goes through to get past it, only to have it come up again. Hmm. And so the music had to capture that, you know, not just the grief of the parent, but dealing with the, the idea of it, you know, coming back to haunt him, literally, you know. Hmm. And then now what do you do? Do you act on it or do you say, well, I've kind of moved past it, um, you know, uh, and that's the sort of the central dilemma of the film is a very human thing amidst all the technology and the futuristic setting that it's in. It comes down to a very human thing in the uh, in the film, and uh, and that's what I think that theme captures. But what a great uh, you know um, circumstance to be able to provide a theme for, but you know, and and challenging. But he came up with exactly the right one. Yes, and I think it's a very Spielbergian uh, theme, this one, because it's uh, he, he's always been able to, to reflect that humanist feeling in all of his movies, from the lighter ones to the most, you know, the most important and, you know, heavy ones, exactly, as well. Yeah, and in his best movies, um, that becomes so apparent. I mean, I think, like, the more you watch Jaws, the less about the shark it becomes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. it's more about people, how what are people are reacting to the situation rather yeah. than it being a story about a shark. So, uh, and I think Minority Report fits in that same mold um, where it's on the surface a crime drama, but it's really about people and what makes them tick and their behavior um, underneath it. Since you just mentioned Jaws, that brings us back to mid-1970s and... To that lavish 4CD box set called the Disaster Movie Soundtrack Collection, featuring remastered versions of the three John Williams scores for the big disaster epics from the 1970s. I mean, The Poseidon Adventure, The Tower and Inferno, and Earthquake. <laughs>
I guess this was quite a trick to pull off because of the several different factors into play. I mean, the first might be the fact that these films and scores come from two different studios, 20th Century Fox and Universal Studios. So tell us what was the plan in creating this unique box set. And let's not forget the fact that The Towering Inferno was a co-production between 20th Century Fox and Warner Brothers. Okay, so that made three studios. <laughs> right. That's so um, I think it's important to state, Mike, um, how fantastic, Maurizio, your segues are. I just love them. They're so well thought out. They really are. No, honestly, <laughs> yes. I, I'm not being sarcastic. I'm, no, I'm being genuine. No, but, but like any good uh, journalist, he knows how to grab onto something when it goes by. So oh, totally, totally, <laughs> um, it's, it's so. But strange, anyway, really. so uh, here again, we uh, essentially it started with the 20th Century Fox conundrum, uh, which was projects to get done while we could. So the Towering Inferno was obviously one of them. It had been like Minority Report on La La Land's list, but sort of sidelined as we did. Um, little things like E.T., Close Encounters, Schindler's List, Harry Potter. But uh, so, you know, so it kept getting pushed back because of those other things coming up. So now it's like, well, I guess we have to do it this year. So um, they were planning on doing a straight reissue of the last version of the Poseidon Adventure from 2010, maybe that was? Yeah. So, So I thought, well, I didn't master the one from... 2010 so um let me go into but i had my audio where i mixed it so let me go and revisit that and then i'll just do a new master well i listened to what i did and i thought "Mm, i could do this a lot better now i think i want to redo it over from scratch same transfers same data but things have evolved it's nearly a decade so um my skill set has increased technology has increased which i've said in most of these interviews that i do it's an ongoing process, and I thought, well, it's it's worth it. There are people who will be annoyed about it, not want to buy it again for just what they would perceive as a marginal quality improvement. But my feeling, again, is better to have it done um, and, and and exist as a master that it's good that's that I feel is as good as I can make it, rather than have it disappear. And God knows when we'd be able to redo it. So. I decided to do that. So this had the idea had to be presented to uh, John's management, and my the response I got was really shocking. It was uh, John said okay, but asks if there's any way to put these together in a set with earthquake. All right. Wow. I was really shocked, and I said, well, because I mean they knew that we're into Universal and doing Universal projects as part of the Heritage program. This could not be part of that. But I did say, I said, look, I don't know. I said, we might be able to come out with them at the same time, but I don't know about making a set. I said, but I'll be happy to look into it. So that's what I did. And the short version of the story is that everybody said no problem. Um, I first started with um, Universal Music Group, and I think they Earthquake had been something that different labels had inquired about Entrada had, I know that, but it hadn't really been assigned and it wasn't really going. It just sort of was like pinned. But uh, when I when I said this to Universal Music Group, the response was, yes, this is no problem. Um, you know, we do this all the time. You just treat it as three 
different releases and um, it's basically just all being sold together and each sale of a collection counts as one sale for that album and uh, you know this is basically no problem so we do it all the time mm-hmm. so from there then I called uh, Warner Music which has the soundtrack rights to the Towering Inferno and they said no problem so then I called Fox Music Department and they said no problem and then I called Universal Studios and they said no problem and then last on the list was Warner Brothers Studios, who basically said, yes, no problem with this, and on the project anyway, we'll take a look at everything, but we're totally going to defer to 20th Century Fox on this as a release um, in terms of reviewing the artwork and the copyright line and, and any of that. Warner mm-hmm. Brothers had um, international distribution on the film, and Fox had domestic. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was just it was really that easy. I was really surprised. But we did have to treat it as three separate releases. So if you if you look at it, it's not like Harry Potter. It's got three yeah. different catalog numbers. And it's basically three different releases um, in a slipcase. But they're being sold as a set because mm-hmm. the composer asked for that. And so um, everybody just came together and made it happen. I think it just, you know, certainly makes it um, stronger as, as a release. And whilst people, unfortunately... We'll have to get the Poseidon Adventure again if they own it already mm-hmm. um, from 10 years ago. It's a much better sounding Poseidon Adventure. It certainly is. Yeah. So I did I did uh, what I could with that by revisiting it. And then Tower Inferno was a major undertaking, which I'm sure you'd like to ask about. But uh, but yeah, so it all just it all just came came together. So it, it still was, it had to go through the process of the, the packaging and the art and approvals and going round and round and round. But it was really kind of like dealing with three different releases in tandem and then just put, putting them in a slipcase. So as part of La La Land's Black Friday batch of five titles, it's actually really seven titles. It's just that three of them are being sold together. scores uh, are very interesting because they present a side of John Williams much less known. I mean, all three scores feature quite a lot of dissonant, suspenseful scoring. You know, in those years, he was experimenting a lot with modern textures and 
atonality you know images comes to mind which is basically from roughly from the same period Also in his concert works from that period, I mean the flute concerto, the essay for strings, so do you think he was consciously trying to find a different, more mature style after the various comedies he did in the 1960s? I don't think consciously. I think he was responding to the projects he was being given because in the same period that of all those things that you mentioned, he was also doing a lot of these Americana scores. Oh yes. You know, the the Cowboys and the Man Who Loved Cat Dancing and the Tom Sawyer musical and um, the Three Breaks, Conrack. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So I mean, it just was. So I think he just, I think he just could do anything. That's really what it comes down to. I'm remembering back to reading memos exchanged um, between uh, letters exchanged between John and MGM during the production of Goodbye, Mr. Chips, mm-hmm. and he was needing music from the 1920s to do his source music but he didn't want them to be well-known tunes yeah he wanted them to be something more obscure yeah and they couldn't find anything and the response was you know why don't you just write something in the vein of what you want (laughs) and so he just did so i mean he wasn't he wasn't around in the 20s you know and he probably didn't have to do much research but there's just something in a good musician you just know there's there's something kind of inherent isn't it yeah yeah there's something just you you do what you do because you have this gift you don't know where it comes from but uh he might have to do a little research but you know certainly would have listened to enough that he just did it he just did these things that sounded like they were written in 1925 yes and that worked perfectly in the film just his genius and and uh and it's not limited to him most great composers have that gift that uh you you write you know, and that's the thing about that a film composer has to do it's like you have to just be sort of a jack of all trades as we say mm-hmm. and um do whatever the project um calls for so you know starting with um the reavers in 1969 and then as you say to just go to uh images just three years later there's mm-hmm. nothing alike about those two things so i mean in that era of early 70s we started to later on maybe pigeonhole him into the blockbuster sci-fi fantasy composer yeah. but if you really look at the early 70s it's remarkable the um the variety of projects that he was doing at the time so um yeah totally i mean 
Fiddler on the Roof is one we should definitely highlight because I mean mm-hmm. that was the, the, the first Oscar and and uh, you know what a beautifully colourful score you know you could tell he was really relishing that wasn't he absolutely brilliant and to this day when I go to see it in a the theater it's like that the sound of the recording and of what he did with the arrangements for it and the conducting of it it just envelops you and it's just a yeah um, a very powerful powerful experience to just hear his music uh, played that way accompanying such a great film even to the point of um, Poseidon Adventure directed by Ronald Neem whose previous movie had been the musical adaptation of Scrooge Oh, yes. Um, and then the prime of Miss Jean Brody. So do, do directors have to do that, too. Change their styles, change the genres. And uh, so why not a composer? But um, naturally, the Poseidon Adventure and then the Italian Inferno. With that, we have to talk about Irwin Allen, with whom John had the relationship with in the 60s. Yeah. And was a very critical um, component um, of his, uh, the pr- progression of his career. Absolutely, and I think that the Tower Inferno is generally considered the first score where Williams showed his brilliance in writing big symphonic set pieces. I mean, the main title, of course, comes to mind, and it's especially thrilling in the sense because it really gives you the feeling of a exciting flight uh, as we see the helicopter going uh, nearer the the skyscraper. And so, and and we see the expression of exhilaration in Paul Newman's face, and that is really he he's able to nail not just you know the grandeur, but also the feelings, the, the joy <laughs> of of such a beautiful moment. And in a way that uh, that's purely cinematic. I mean, you kind of just it's kind of I don't know that main title plays. It's hard to articulate, but it's almost like you just want to say, ah, I'm at the movies. Yeah. Because you're just looking at this great footage and hearing this great music. And it's, yeah. it doesn't replicate anything that you actually experience in life, but it's, it's just this kind of um, sort of celebration of just being at the movies, watching something. Also, to put back the, you know, the legendary symbol crash that was in sync with Irwin Allen's name on the screen, <laughs> which I'm sure Irwin insisted on. I know. I love that. It's iconic. Yeah. <laughs> Irwin Allen was a was a very uh, flamboyant producer in Hollywood, and he was a, a, an extraordinary character. And so I did for him a couple of films: Poseidon Adventure and The Towering Inferno. People may remember. So we recorded the opening of the Towering Inferno, and I went into the booth, and Irwin said, it's no good. 
I said, what's wrong? What, tell me, what's wrong? Well, just no good. I said, not anything good. So Lionel Newman, who was the music director of the studio at that time, took me to said, John, what, go out and play it again. And in bar 60, whatever it was, Irwin's, Irwin Allen's credit comes on the screen. So if you put a big symbol and a drum on that, I think that's all you have to do. <laughs> so I went back and told the percussion to do such and such. And we played through it again. The guy said that thing. We continued to the end. I went back in. He said, that's fabulous. What did you do to it? True story. But the, uh, you know, his history with Irwin Allen, of course, takes us back again to 20th Century Fox. Yeah. Um, because John was among the people that Lionel Newman brought to the studio mm -hmm. in 1963, 64, when the music department was reorganized after the disaster of Cleopatra, which was still, by the way, the biggest hit of that year. It just cost so much that it caused the studio to close and uh, restructure itself. But uh, Alfred Newman left, and then Lionel Newman came in and took over the music department and brought in this incredible group of people, John and Jerry Goldsmith and Alex North, and you know you had uh, Kenny Wanberg and Kenny Hall, the music editors, and Herbie Spencer and Sandy Courage, yeah, um, and uh, you know Arthur Morton, Henry Mancini was there. Then Leslie Brickus and Ian Fraser came in for Doctor Doolittle. All of these people there in the mid '60s, all at the same time. And you know, Fox did not do as many television shows as Universal did, where mm -hmm. Williams had worked previously. But the ones that they that did do, the Irwin Allen shows, Batman, you know, they're 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 still known today. Yeah. So, I mean, they really just sort of jump-started this um, TV production as well as the film production in the mid-60s, and John was part of that. So, I mean, getting that gig of um, uh, doing the Lost in Space and Time Tunnel Land of the Giants themes, you know, in an era where when the main title of a television series came on, the music had to just sort of grab your attention, and then you were just there hooked for 30 minutes. And, you totally. know, so uh, that, that just obviously made him sort of the go-to guy when Irwin Allen went back to feature films, having done some also in the 60s for Fox, but to um, sort of uh, jump on the disaster movie um, trend that had started with Airport, ironically scored by Alfred, Alfred Newman, Newman. Yeah. his last score. But uh, when he did the Poseidon Adventure, I don't think there was any question that he'd be goaded uh, John um, with it. Yeah, yeah. In those years, I think it was either him or Jerry Goldsmith, mostly. <laughs> if you yeah. had to have one of those kind of pictures. And also, Jerry did work with Erwin Allen as well. Yes, he did The Swarm later. And, yeah. Um... Let's not talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but that's, it's one of my favorite entitles. What an entitle that is, isn't it? I mean, it's such an infectious, catchy theme. It is. It's joyful. I like that score. It's a good score. Yeah, it is very, very good. Absolutely. And... Uh, I think that I'd love to touch a, a, a bit more about this uh, 20th Century Fox, uh, uh, especially for what it means to John Williams' career, because as you really clearly explained, I mean, his career jump-started in that period, in the mid-1960s, back when he was mentored by Lionel Newman, and that was similar to what he did before with Stanley Wilson at Universal Studios. And I was talking about this recently with Sandy de Crescent, the music contractor, and she said really uh, the importance of for John to work on those, uh, you know, 90 minutes 
TV shows like Raft Suspense Theater or Alcoa Theater, where he had to change and adapt style every week because those were anthology series. And every week you had a different kind of shows. One, one week was horror, the next week was maybe more of a thriller, and the week after was maybe a Western. So he had to learn and adapt. I was recently sifting on YouTube <laughs> through a series of craft suspense theater episodes. And man, he wrote such beautiful music for that show. I mean, that 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 would be a box set I'd love to have, a collection of his music from that show, craft suspense theater. It's really good stuff. Um and uh but yeah but that's the that's the genius that allows you to do the poseidon adventure the cowboys you know pete and tilly and images all in one year so um yeah that that you know that's certainly that that work in television um if that doesn't uh, give you you know that skill set nothing will mm -hmm. and speaking of universal i mean earthquake is a very nice to have because it's presenting for the first time the actual film recording of the score, right? Yes. Jaws. I mean, you had to deal with two different sets of recordings. Did he do uh, separate sessions for the album recording and then a separate sessions for the film recording? Yes, completely separate. It was done. The album recording was done later, and the surprise there was that Universal Music Group found the two-inch multi-track of the album recording. And my first question was, why don't you have this on Jaws, but you have it on this? <laughs> And uh, the answer was that sometimes the less successful something is, the less it moves around. So it just was that nobody had touched this. So it enabled me to take the album recording and do a brand new mix of it. And um, not only that, but we had a couple of tracks on the album that had sound effects incorporated into it. And that was not the original plan for the album. Um, John had organized his selections and arrangements for the album and they recorded them and later on um, Sonny Burke who was producing the album when it looked like the sense around process was getting basically driving the publicity for the film he went back in and added sound effects to the beginning of the main title and then created a medley out of uh, what had been two different selections on the album so this enabled us to go back and present the album as John originally intended it and then we presented those two tracks with the sound effects, which also were the A and B side of the single 45 RPM release. And then that followed by um, the film score recording. And again, like uh, Monsignor, very conveniently both fit in one CD nicely.
we had the three track um, uh, split um, of the film score recording. So it was more like Family Plot rather than Jaws in that it was not really intended to be in stereo. So I had to sort of put my own kind of uh, formula that I've come up with for uh, dealing with those um, split mono three track elements to make it sort of sound pleasing and to give it in some kind of stereo space without sounding too funky. But that that's probably why they did the album recording was because um, it seemed like it was going to do decently well as an album or as at least as a promotional item for the movie that they went and did another recording. But that's one where we've had no, none of the film recording had been available until now. There was a recent uh, Shot Factory put it out on Blu-ray and, mm-hmm. uh, and they needed some music. And fortunately, I had already had it. So I actually did some very quick mixes to give to them um, for their special features so that when they talk about the score, they actually have the, the film music tracks playing. Um, so that might have been, if anybody picked that up, if there were any attentive listeners, they would have had a tiny little clue that Earthquake was coming. But mm. um, it seems like nobody really saw it coming. So like, like an earthquake itself, which you don't see coming. <laughs> oh, nicely put. But we're talking about the you know reflection and William's gift at writing reflective themes. I love the city sleeps cue. It's just wonderful. Um, you know, obviously the calm before the storm. alternate mix of Earthquake, track 33, is particularly, uh, I, I thought, actually has the edge on the original. I don't know what you guys think. Uh, I like that alternate mix. Yeah, yeah. The main title was saved in a, I had six, a six-channel separations on it. Yeah. So still, still not the way that you would normally mix down an orchestra later. But, um, you know, this just speaks to where we were at the time. I mean, um, nobody really even saw yet the whole... Um, um, reintroduction of stereo to cinemas at that mm-hmm. time. Um, you know, Star Wars, of course, did a lot for that. Um, so even by the time we got to Jaws 2, it was a nice, clean, left-center-right stereo mix, even though the film was mono. They were doing sort of a standardized mix. Prior to that, particularly Universal, um, they weren't. They only dealt with the music um, as the needs of the film re- required it. So even on some of this heritage collection projects we've done, we have these three-channel mix downs, and and they're all that exist. Um, we were very fortunate, in fact, on the original Jaws, that it wasn't 
saved in just that way, that somebody had the foresight to um, have a more reasonable sounding three track uh, element done. But um, on Earthquake, we have kind of the best of both worlds, you know, in that not just taking their existing stereo album master that I actually got to go back and, and redo it and, and upgrade it and get it sounding good. And then the entire film score itself. So really, um, none of the content on that disc has been out before um, in that form. Uh, and then when you add it to the uh, remastered Poseidon Adventure and uh, the Towering Inferno, which was the biggest effort of the three, uh, it just made for just a great set. Speaking of Universal, I think there is quite a lot of things that still have to see the light. Uh, speaking of John Williams' scores from the Universal Studios archives, I mean, there is a he did a lot of movies for Universal that still has to be released on album, like The Secret Ways or The Rare Breed, other film scores from the 60s, I think. Am I right? Well, the secret ways would be very, very early, and I don't, in fact, know if anything exists on that. That was maybe sixty-one or something. Um, but yeah, the rare breed um, we have had transferred, and the story of a woman. Those were two that uh, Entrada was going to do, and went to John, and uh, he he said no. I don't think that's a permanent no, but at least at that time. You know, he did not want them to proceed. So, but I think eventually they'll they'll come around. Um, and there are other ones. Um, there's a, there's a few from Universal of his that we are looking at. I hope the Sugarland Express will finally be, you know, allowed. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's one that's been archived and um, it's good material. Uh, it was presented to him, but. Uh, Unfortunately, he also said no to that. There's something about it. I don't quite know what it is. Um, but I don't believe that it's permanent. I think eventually we'll get to the point where the historic importance of that score, um, however um, relatively, um, I, you know, I, don't, I don't want to say insubstantial, but I mean in terms of it's not a two-hour epic is what I mean. So yeah. in, in his mind, it seems maybe inconsequential, but mm. I think that, that that's outweighed by the historic importance of it being the first collaboration with Steven Spielberg. Yeah, yeah because mm, that's that, that's that's 1974, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's 45 years this year. You know, we, yes. we celebrate the 45th year of John Williams Steven Spielberg collaboration, and this year also we'll see the end of Star Wars uh, for all, <laughs> all we know it, especially considering. 
John Williams involvement with episode 9 finally coming out so it's a moment of closure I think for John this year because uh, it's the last of the Star Wars movies it's probably you know starting to feel like he's stepping into a new era for himself and early next year he will be in Vienna conducting the Vienna Philharmonic uh, for the first time doing his concert in Europe other than London of course and so that sounds like you know a new beginning well the interesting thing is that well first of all you know um sugarland yes came out in 74 but it was actually recorded in 73 Hmm. and um and he met steven spielberg in early 72 so we're close to them knowing each other for 50 years which is an astounding idea it's been 47 wow Feeling old, feeling Likewise, old. Likewise, or sim- similarly, um, you know, I'm not quite sure when he first agreed to do Star Wars. Sometime in 76, for sure. Which mm. means that Star Wars has been in John Williams' life for half his life. <laughs> yes. And that's an astounding thought also, that he's still conducting music for Star Wars. Um, and he spent half of his life doing it because he was just 45, I think, when the first movie came out. So certainly maybe, what, 43, 44, when he first agreed to do it. So uh, that's an astounding uh, concept to just, uh, you know, um, consider. Um, it's mind-blowing. But, uh, but, here, but here we are. So, um, so yeah, there is still more to do. And, uh, um, you know, we're not done yet. Yeah, <laughs> and I think he does feel the same that he's not done yet. I think. <laughs> oh no, he definitely still wants to make music. But the um, there's a lovely interview. It's an archive interview. It's worth seeking out with uh, Gene. You know, the guy with the crazy mustache. He when he talks about the fact he can never remember. You know, he he finds that he still finds himself astounding that he, you know, he writes all this music, but. He wakes up the next morning and says, "Did I did I write that?" And I think that's you know, and I, I love that quote because I think so many creative people like you know feel that way, don't they? Because when you're when you're in the zone, when you're in the zone, you just kind of well, you're there, and then you you know you sometimes you yeah. you look back at what you've written and you go, "Wow, did I write that?" Yeah. Well, I like the interview where he talked about Steven Spielberg and saying, you know, he remembers. Um, the third subordinate theme I wrote for Aunt Sally in some movie I forgot I did. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, yes, I presume that's Tom Sawyer. Aunt Sally wasn't it? Tom Sawyer. It um, might have been that. Yeah, so, but that, that's that came into John's mind. So that was very humorous. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so no, I mean, and then Leslie Brickes's quote to me when I interviewed him when I did Goodbye, Mr. Chips project, he says, "I'm not stopping until I'm stopped." Mm. <laughs> yeah, and I think you know anybody who does these things. Look, look, Leslie's in London right now working on a new production of Sammy, his Sammy Davis Jr. musical, um, and and he's eighty eight. So um, Petula Clark, who was in by Mr. Chips, is on stage in the West End, and Mary Poppins. I mean, these people, they do what they do because they keep doing it. Absolutely. So it's like you know you 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 really can't stop. This is what you do. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, so I mean, uh, John might scale back on conducting, but he's—I don't think he's going to uh, stop writing. He can't. No, absolutely. He, he says it'll be like retiring from breathing. Mm-hmm. That's what he said. You know. So, are you talking about Gene Shalit from the Today Show? Is that he were re- referencing to him? I couldn't remember his surname. Thank you, Gene Shalit. I love his mustache. He's—he's he's still alive, is he? 
I, you know, I actually. He must be a fair it. age now. He must be a fair age. Yeah, but I mean, I was I was uh, talking to John Burlingame not long ago about the era when we actually had movie critics on news shows. Yeah, <laughs> yes, you'd watch the evening news and you'd get to so and so doing the movie review. It's like we don't get that anymore. It's all it's all on the internet, or we all know everything before we even get to that point. Towering Inferno is certainly the most, uh, I think, the most exciting, um, you know, release as part of this set. I mean, as much as Earthquake is so funky and, and kind of cool, and Poseidon Adventure um, dramatic in its own way, and of course that famous hit song. But the Towering Inferno, I mean, fifty nine, I think it's fifty nine tracks, and that's that's quite a treat. I mean, we were talking about the main title there a moment ago, and I, I know so many musicians in the same way that. Star Wars, you know, inspired a whole generation. I know quite a few. The Towering Inferno inspired many, many players because it's such a striking score. I mean, even the cue "Let There Be Light," yeah, you know, that's a very rare bit of drama for that time in cinema, wasn't it? That kind of melodramatic kind of wow. Yes, it's interesting to note how Williams in these films was able to express a dramatic symphonic style that would later become uh, a trademark of his own. Uh, in all three scores, we can hear seeds of what would become his dramatic style of later years.
Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think I had once, I maybe in the liner notes, had cited the Cowboys as his largest scale pre-Star Wars score. Um, but Towering Inferno, uh, probably bigger, although quite a lot of it's not used in the film. And it's and it's and it's a much longer film. It actually was daringly long film for its time, isn't it? Like two hours forty five minutes or something. Yeah, really long. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So and not and nothing happens for most of the time. Yes. Yeah, and so you get and if you eliminate so if you eliminate all the source music and this party that seems to go on forever, um, you know, uh, and then the, the fact that certain underscore cues are dialed out or, or hidden by the sounds of the fire. You know, or or is kind of what we call creeping around music. You're not aware. It's deceptive in how much music is actually there. Um, so when it was all put together, it shocked me. Just um, you know, what a large scale score it was. And uh, you know, we had the film score monthly release, but um, there again, done in 2001, with the technology and the methodology of the time. You listened, and it's like, okay, it's good, and it sounds fine, and whatever. But I tended to kind of tune out on it a little bit, and because certain things didn't really sound like they had the um, pertinence that they needed. Um, and this, this just speaks to what I've mentioned before, which is just this opportunity to go in with the microsurgery, really listening to listen to what's going on and figure out what you can do to make it sound good or to get past things that are damaged. So with this, it just was such a major undertaking. have to give a shout out to Neil Bulk, who did all the prep on it, and the fact that we found everything there was to find. So I had the six-track mag transfers, um, which were the same as used on the film score monthly release, but new transfers of them. Fox also gave me the mono music stem. Uh, Warner Brothers gave me the six-track music and effects stem, which they had for the foreign 70 millimeter versions. Um, and then I got uh, the album master from Warner Music. And, um, the, and then the Irwin Allen Estate had um, a um, collection of mono tapes of basically everything. That's great. That's, um, that's, that's, that's rare having all those married together, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, so it was a matter of bringing it all together. Massive session um, by the time all was said and done. much from the Irwin Allen estate because I was determined to get as much in stereo as I possibly could. I did make a decision part the way through that the, the here again, um, similar to Monsignor, the uh, album mix on the Towering Inferno was very, very different sounding from um, what the film mixes were. And as far as I could tell on the film mixes is that there again, they were not necessarily thinking stereo mix. 
I kind of feel that um, when Earthquake was getting so much pre-release buzz about Sensoround, that they needed to sort of up their game for the Towering Inferno, and so made the decision to do a few 70mm six-track runs of it. And so there were certain cues late in the sessions that were recorded with a much more traditional way. So that became a, a sort of a challenging thing to pay attention to and make sure that it all blended together as best that it could. But then, uh, unfortunately, there were a lot of um, tapes that were damaged. And if people remember the Film Score Monthly release, yeah, um, there were cues put at the back end of it that were marked as damaged. Yeah, And I wanted to do everything I could to not do that. To actually mm-hmm. have everything be in part of, is it, within the main program, um, if possible. Um, so I took the restoration to a certain point, and then identified what I call the problem children, and um, <laughs> put my head together with Chris Malone's in Australia, and um, and we went back and forth with these six or eight problem children, um, and just worked at them and worked at them and worked at them until every little thing that was bothering us was addressed as far as we could and then sort of called it a day after that. had somebody else uh, in Australia, Jeff Brown, who had approached me a couple of years ago, several years ago in fact, telling me all about his passion for the Towering Inferno and his expertise on the history of the production, um, which was not an exaggeration. He even knew about what was recorded, what was not recorded, source music, everything, and so uh, saying if it ever happens, you know, I'd love to be part of it. And So I did actually consult with him also, and uh, so shout out to him too. So Australia played a role. In, the, in getting the Tower Inferno done, as well as um, the two major studios and a major music label, and uh, the Irwin Allen Estate, and uh, Universal Music Group, um, who you know helped bring it all together and did things like um, letting us use um, the Morning After, the pop version of the Morning After, and including it on the Poseidon Adventure was possible because we were also doing Earthquake through them. So um, so it was a way to kind of bring it all together. And we had to be very careful of um, making it clear that Earthquake was not an Irwin Allen production. Because I think there are still people today who automatically think that. But it's not. Um, it was um, Mark Robeson, for whom Williams had already worked and had a relationship on uh, Valley of the Dolls and then um, Daddy's Gone Hunting. You know, there was a lot of existing relationships that were behind the, the sort of the backstory, if you will, of Williams's connection with these disaster scores. Um, it was a continuation of very strong professional relationships that he already had in place at that time. I think Valley, Valley of the Dolls was the, the first Williams Oscar nomination from memory, wasn't it? It I mean, was his first. I think that was his yes. first ever. So that's yeah. um, something quite significant. 
but definitely this um, um this box set i mean it's lovely packaging as well and i think you know the Tari inferno as as you both know i mean it, it's been very hard to get a hold of i mean people were, were spending a couple hundred quid on on trying to find a copy of the old release so this is a, a big gap finally filled so this is this is really great Yes, and, and again, it was one that we sort of re- really needed to get done uh, while we could with Fox Music. And so, uh, and there are still more coming. There are still um, a few more Fox t- titles in the pipeline. But just because we get so busy, um, as long as the deals were made and the licenses were signed, they're fine. But there's still, I don't know, maybe half a dozen titles still to come in the new year. Uh, but we've done uh, all the Williams. I did, uh, we're unfortunately not revisiting any of his older scores, but I did have them all transferred so um so so that so they all exist including valley of the dolls which is not in great shape but i think uh, could be restored one day oh that's great news that's great news because i last i heard from lucas candle was that he was lost or unusable yeah i would say more unusable certainly not lost uh, it's, there's a lot of wow in it but we can deal with wow now so i mean i think down the road um uh when things get a little bit more settled with uh, Disney, it's something that I could maybe bring up with them. And, and maybe it'll see the light of day, we'll see. But at least I, it, it's all been saved. I retrans all those comedy scores, you know, everything. I, a new, uh, I did do some restoration on How to Steal a Million that uh, found its yes. way to the Blu-ray track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so there just has to be sort of a, um, a, a reason to do it. But in terms of the data itself, we've got it all. Anything that John did there at Fox. And since you mentioned Fox and Disney, I have to make the obligatory question. Sorry, Mike. <laughs> Now that episode nine will come out and all will be set for Star Wars for John Williams, do you think there will be sometimes in the future, maybe not a huge box of release, but maybe something coming in the future? I think everybody knows that it should happen, but my answer has to be um, what it would be for anything else, which is that I don't talk about releases until they're out. So um, there's really as little point in asking me about that as there is about anything that I might be working on that isn't out yet. Um, but I just will leave it with, uh, I think everybody involves, involved uh, knows that uh, something should, be, should happen. And um, as I said at our little gathering that we did in London over a year ago, um, what do you think? <laughs> so, I mean, uh, it's just a matter of time. I think it's just a matter of just be patient. But for the time being, I'm perfectly content to um, uh, focus on this uh, new score that's coming out in the new film because it's such an important milestone for Star Wars and, and for John. And uh, we've got a whole new score um, to uh, discover and uh, live with and enjoy for a, a little while. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that he seems to have worked on it up until the last minute, he wrapped up recording just a few days ago uh, from now we are speaking now. So it's pretty amazing to think about Uh, this 87-year-old composer still kicking it uh, until the end, <laughs> really. Yes, and seeing it through and, uh, and really caring about it. I mean, he really, yeah. really cares about it and wanted to uh, get it done and see it through. I can't wait to hear it. I, I, you know, it's going to be one of those moments where I'm sure you guys will be the same. You know, I've, I've got my tickets for the midnight screening and then I think the soundtrack is out on the 20th, isn't it? On the 20th of December? Yes. Yeah. Um, so I will definitely be setting aside 
uh, hopefully 75 minutes. I don't know how long the CD is yet, but uh, with my headphones and just zoning, zoning out completely. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's just going to be one of those. It's just, uh, well, it has to be done, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, know. yeah. No distractions. Turn the phone off and all that. Yeah, it's it's a mo- it's a moment to be savored, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, no matter what we might think of the film, I mean, this is for those of us who uh, just uh, have an attachment to John's music. It's just um, a very important moment, um, especially those of us who were around when um, when the first one came out, and it was just this, this very unassuming little movie opening, and uh, um, you heard the music, and it just changed everything. So uh, to just reflect back on that, um, not long ago I brought out my LP from 1977 and just looked at it, and it's just it's like a talismanic object. I find it <laughs> put. just taking that out and look, looking yeah. at it, you know, just this the blue 20th century record sleeves and that piece of paper that's in there that has the track descriptions and everything. It just was so unassuming, but and it has all those musicians there, which I always loved. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So I mean, that almost I feel like that piece of paper created the whole soundtrack community as we now know it. it that was sort of like the flashpoint for it so this is a very big uh, deal i don't know about press screenings i mean I, I know i'm on a list to get some advanced screening i just don't know how far in advance they could possibly be so all i really know is that uh it's it's john williams star wars music you know and that's not a bad thing but it's you know we we kind of know what it sort of will sound like but i mean it's i'm sure it's going to have a, a lot of surprises but i just i'm glad that you know the joke you know how you have like if you're driving somewhere and you have kids in the car and keep asking are we there yet you know, um, that's what I kept saying. Are they are they done yet? No. Are they done yet? No. Are they done yet? No. And I'm like, well, what's going to happen? It's going to reach a point eventually where I think he'll just have to bring the orchestra to, to the premiere and keep playing. But Mike, th- but think think about ten years or so from now. You think about all that wonderful extra material you had to play with for an ultra special edition. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Be optimistic. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I am. I am optimistic, and uh, and I'm sure that it's a uh, it's you know eventually uh, we're going to have everything we'd like to have. I hope Disney had maybe a film crew filming something from during the session for this uh, last movie. I know John is very you know kind of shy to do that, but um, that that is a, this is a very special occasion. I think I'd love. I'll, I'll ask about it. But I, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if maybe even when the the home releases of Rise of Skywalker come out, that there isn't some featurette about uh, John and the music. Yeah, um, yeah. it would seem logical. Um, I, but I, I keep I keep remembering that beautiful 1980 documentary uh, from BBC. Done. Oh, the one with the Empire sessions yeah, and all that. Yeah, yeah. That's a classic. That because I mean, yeah, it's such a window into his. You know, the, the chamber music in his house, and it's all very personal, yeah. And it showed the offices at Fox where they worked. And, yeah. Um, that's the place where they were until 85. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, before going to Amblin, where he yeah, still yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that's, uh, that's, um, that, that will be also a nice, lovely thing to restore and remaster. That documentary? Uh, yeah, yeah, that yeah, be. yeah. It would be great. I mean, it's probably it's tied up between BBC and Lucasfilm, I guess, because it was like a, it was like a shared production. So I, I don't know um, how that worked. But it, apparently, it's in the BBC archives because a friend of mine had told me it's there. But it's, it's what like, I always wonder about shows like that is where's the rough footage? Mm, you know, back right. when they would have these featurettes made for feature films that are twenty minutes long, and uh, you wonder oh, well, yes, where's yes. all the, where's everything they shot? Because now that would be gold. 
I know the Jonathan Rinsler a few years ago uh, was able to sift through the immense Lucasfilm archives when he did those beautiful making of Star Wars books. Uh, and he was able also to recover the audio recordings that John Williams did uh, as an interview uh, with the, the publicity manager of Lucasfilm at that time. Well, Charlie Lippincott. Yeah, yeah He exactly. was so thorough with his work and, and getting interviews with everybody. So, um, yeah, I mean, he, he was just brilliant. He just didn't, uh, he did, he didn't miss a trick. It's like he made sure that everything got covered. with you guys so thank you tim for co-hosting with me the the show today well thank you for asking and thank you very much mike for being a guest today again with uh, the legacy of john williams podcast thanks Maurizio, and thank you for what you're doing i mean you're talking to some wonderful people and and actually honoring the legacy um so it's a very um, aptly named website and podcast and it's very important work that you're doing oh thank you very much it really is yeah there's some, there's some good ones i'm looking forward to hearing coming up soon as well and uh, and i'm working on some things for the new year that i'm sure uh, we'll have occasion to uh, bring us back together again that'd be great oh absolutely can't wait whenever you want guys so thank you tim thank you mike and so until the next time take care and happy holidays everybody yes happy holidays you too happy holidays Thanks to Mike Matesino and Tim Burden for their support and generosity. You can order the Disaster Movie Soundtrack Collection Music by John Williams on LaLaLandRecords.com. Thank you for listening, and until the next episode, happy holidays from the legacy of John Williams. Mm-hmm.